0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Coastal Conundrum Podcast. We've got a really spectacular show today. We're gonna highlight for you some of the challenges to implementing adaptation strategies along the nation's coasts. Specifically, we're gonna look at the current legal framework in four southeastern states that may derail strategies found in many coastal adaptation plans for enhancing the resilience of coastal infrastructure. And we're gonna focus a little bit on the most uh, critical coastal infrastructure, uh, coastal roads. For some background, accelerating sea level rise from global warming is and will continue to exacerbate high tide and coastal flooding, storm surge and erosion. Roads subject to these impacts are likely to see water infiltrating the sub-base, space and asphalt layers of the pavement system, degrading the integrity of the coastal roads and leading to shorter functional lifespans, requiring more frequent and costly repairs and maintenance. Many municipal, county, and state roads in the coastal areas are particularly vulnerable to these impacts. For example, there are more than 60,000 miles of U.S. roads and bridges in coastal floodplains, and 12% of these are located in high-tide flood zones. Uh, Climate Central reports noted that both Florida and North Carolina have more than 2,500 miles of roadways that are less than four feet above mean high tide. Much of the burden will fall on local governments to develop and implement adaptation strategies for coastal roads subject to sea level rise. Decisions to repair, protect, elevate, or realign or possibly abandon coastal roads will be hard decisions due to long-term uncertainty and limited budgets. They will be made even more difficult by the complex and often conflicting legal framework of duties, immunities, and takings law that can support policy inertia. Or pose roadblocks to governments taking any adaptation actions. I'm extremely lucky to have Shauna Jones and Thomas Rupert on the podcast today, two experts that can illuminate these current problems and, more importantly, suggest some ways forward. As part of a multi year Southeast Regional Resilience Research Project funded by the North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida Sea Grant programs and NOAA's Office for Coastal Management, Shauna and Thomas were part of a team that explored these legal complexities in the four southeastern states. In 2019, a portion of their legal research focused on roads was published in the Columbia Journal of Environmental Law entitled, Roads to Nowhere in Four States, State and Local Governments in the Atlantic Southeast Facing Sea Level Rise. This article lays out the legal challenges to managing the transportation system in light of increasing sea level rise, and more importantly, advances a number of proposals to address these very sticky issues. Shauna is a faculty member in the Planning and Environmental Services Unit in the University of Georgia's Institute of Government. She is also the director of the Georgia Sea Grant Legal Program, where she assists communities with managing legal and policy issues related to land use, environmental quality, and coastal flooding. Thomas leads the Florida Sea Grant Program's Coastal Planning Program, where he works with partners to develop legal and policy analysis for local governments on planning for sea level rise, community resilience, and associated long-term challenges and opportunities for Florida's coastal communities. And both are licensed attorneys. Uh, Folks, we will have Shauna and Thomas walk us through their research just as soon as we hear a word from our sponsors.
1: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering, with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Rebella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com Dune Science Group Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show.
0: So Shauna and Thomas, welcome to the Coastal Conundrum Podcast.
2: Thank you, Bill.
3: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and glad you're doing it on this topic.
0: Yeah, um, and, and I'm glad that you're still with us after uh, Isaias uh, nearly crashed our party. Um, uh, and I hope uh, Thomas, you guys have really um, uh, dodged the bullet a number of times then in Florida
3: recently. Yes, we have, and I'm grateful.
0: Yes, yeah, so. Um, also, one, one other thing, I forgot to mention that your law article was selected for the 13th Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review, which um, I'm thinking is a big deal. No? And congratulations on that.
2: Thank you. It was, you were right. We were, pick, we were chosen by Environmental Law Institute and the Policy Review at, at Vanderbilt. They work with Vanderbilt Law School as a top four paper. So we're pretty excited about that.
0: So, any anyone that can slip in the title of a Talking head song into a law v- article is very cool in my book. So, uh, so anyway, so uh, Shauna, uh, can you uh, give our audience a uh, tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how did an English lit major uh, make it into the coastal planning and uh, law business?
2: <laughs> that is a good question. I am. Um, from a family of lawyers. I love to read and write. My life has been driven by words. So law and English actually go together pretty well. And I knew I'd probably go to law school. And um, before I did, I worked in Texas for a telecommunications agency, and I caught the regulatory bug. And when I went to the University of Maryland Law School, they have a top environmental program, and it just It fit well with my, I guess, research interests, but also desire to be in public service. And um, then, I mean, I, I wandered right. I followed my husband. We ended up in Norfolk, Virginia. I worked on Chesapeake Bay issues in in the two thousands, and Norfolk floods a lot. And sea level rise was becoming an issue um, more predominantly locally. And I got to know Skip Styles at Wetlands Watch and started working in this area around two thousand seven, um, but but kind of in in more focused in the early 2010s so that's that's my that was my journey my road i guess you could say and
0: and thomas how about if uh can you give us a a little uh about your background and and how you managed to find your way to sea grant
3: yeah i mean i i had a went to law school originally really focused on the nexus of water and property rights and agriculture and during law school i ended up working on a project that looked at protecting sea turtle habitat here in Florida. One of the things that we examined was sea level rise. And at that time, back in about 2007 also, like Sean, I started looking at that and realized that there wasn't a lot of careful thinking being done yet about the legal impacts of sea level rise at the local government level. So it was an area that was really ripe for work. And at the same, and shortly thereafter, Florida Sea Grant and Sea Grant Nationally and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration began a focus on what are some of the barriers to the greater implementation of long known ways of reducing coastal risk and hazards. And it resulted from their work, the legal impediments and fears of of legal challenges were one of the real concerns of local governments. And so in response, Florida Sea Grant created a position for an attorney focused on planning and hazards within Florida. And I was fortunate enough to secure that position, have been really excited to work in that context for the past decade. Great,
0: And did you grow up in Florida?
3: No, actually, I grew up uh, on a farm about eight miles from Walnut Grove of Little House in the Prairie fame. Yeah. But again, it really growing up on the farm there, it I saw firsthand the issues of agriculture, water quality, and property rights. And so it really motivated a my focus on property and our conceptions of property as foundational. And that same foundation is really critical to think about when we talk about sea level rise, and I think that will come out during our conversation.
0: Absolutely, and uh, it's funny. Let me just, uh, Shauna, uh, you said the name Skip Styles, and, and I think we had an interview with Skip uh, when we were down at the uh, um, uh, one of the coastal uh, conferences uh, not too long ago, and uh, he's a great guy.
2: Yeah, he's he's been on the forefront
0: um so so shauna can you give us a a brief overview of the regional resilience project and and before you give that answer i'd really just like to take this opportunity to dedicate this show to Carl Havens, um, who was the past director of the Florida Sea Grant Program, and who, along with Todd Davidson, um, were, uh, was a principal catalyst for this regional research initiative set of projects. And Carl passed away very unexpectedly last year, and he's certainly deeply missed by uh, a lot of us that had worked with him.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that, Bill. You're, you're right. This, this was, Carl was an inter- integral part of this and I remember him being so passionate and enthusiastic and, and it was a shock, you know, when he passed away last year and certainly he's, he's the foundational to so much good work and hopefully, you know, he was proud. Of, I think he was very happy with, with the outcomes of this project. Um, it was a regional project, as you said, funded by Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina Sea Grant programs. And um, in that it was designed, it had several components. Thomas and I will be talking mostly about the legal components, but it did include local participation from four different communities in the four state region. And these, this was designed to definitely. Um, be of service and help these communities address very local problems. And some of that um, work product included helping Nags Head with some septics policy or working with um, what's called a uh, VCAPs, which was a vulnerability assessment. Thomas um, and another um, scientist on the project were, were very involved in Monroe County, Florida, not just the legal analysis, but with the community rating system and assisting with, with different reports and analysis of road infrastructure, um, cost um, issues. So the, the project spanned a lot of different components, including some modeling. And so it was... Very fun and quite quite a group. We had um, scientists, we had geographers, we had lawyers, and we had students. And um, so that interdisciplinary um, nature was was challenging sometimes, but also also really fun. So we're grateful to the Sea Grant programs for supporting supporting the work.
0: And Thomas, do you have anything to add add to that, or or anything? Um as far as uh, Carl Havens goes?
3: Well, I think Shauna covered the project very well. And thank you for dedicating this show to Carl. He was the one who hired me and he was always very supportive of the type of work I've been doing. And as Shauna mentioned, he himself was very passionate about the topics of climate change and sea level rise. So I think this is a good homage to him.
0: Great. And, and, and Thomas, uh, can you uh, help us understand why you guys decided to focus the the legal uh, article on roads?
3: Well, for me, uh, this really started, you know, back in about 2010 or even prior to 2010 when there began a significant legal case here in the state of Florida and it was up in the northeast part of the state and a relatively small rural county there had a 1.6 mile segment of road that it owned and it has a really interesting history the road was originally built on a little spit of sand in between a river and the atlantic ocean back in the 50s by the state of florida and shortly within less than a decade after it was built DOT started looking at all the erosion that was occurring and attacking that road segment and they kind of realized maybe that wasn't the most brilliant place to site part of their state road. So rather than – I think they made a great decision then and rather than trying to fight the Atlantic Ocean, they said, you know what, let's just site this better. And they actually purchased new right-of-way further inland and relocated part of the road. So relocation was going on even back in the 50s, or 60s in this case. But the old piece of road remained, and it wasn't until 1979 that DOT managed to get the county to accept ownership of that old piece of right-of-way. And at that point, you know, I always kind of joke, that was the county's first mistake, was accepting that piece of road from the Department of Transportation after it had, you know, 30-year history of se- severe erosion, problems that led the DOT to want to abandon it. But the county did accept it, and then permit applications started rolling into the county to build more homes along it, and the county issued those permits. And of course, the Atlantic Ocean didn't seem to take much account of that and continued its erosive impacts, and over the decades, it continued to experience problems, including complete washouts and breaches into the river behind the beach. And so eventually the homeowners became frustrated with their lack of access and the constantly degrading condition of the road. And they sued the county. And part of their, they had a num- numerous claims were included, but uh, I've done some analysis that focuses really on the takings claims or the claim that this lack of maintenance and keeping that road in good condition was actually violating their private property right to keep that road contact with their property. The county was in, a, has, was in a really tough position and struggled with this for a long time because the county said, you know, here we are. At one point, they they put together numbers indicating they had spent 25 times as much money per mile per year trying to maintain this little piece of road as they did for a standard county road. So they were throwing money at it left and right, and yet the Atlantic Ocean would just not be satisfied with that. Um, So the case never once mentions sea level rise, but just looking at that case and how it led to severe potential liability for the county was enough to motivate me to really start this focus on roads. And so I talked extensively about that case for the next decade and tried to really raise the profile of the issues included in that case. And during that time is when Sean and I started working together. And when this opportunity came, Sean had the great idea of kind of broadening work on roads. And so it turned out to be a really great way to increase dramatically the profile of these issues and the challenges they pose for local governments as sea levels continue to rise. So
0: uh, is, as I recall, I think that there was a quote out of your your paper that um, sometimes the, the road serves uh, sort of as uh, canaries in the coal mines for coastal infrastructure for a lot of these coastal communities. Is that a fairly accurate statement?
3: Yes, I think it is. And, you know, Sean and I have a colleague, Dr. Jason Evans, and he often discusses that it's roads and drainage and that when people start seeing the water coming up out of the drains or see the water sitting on the road, that's when people really start getting excited and calling up their local governments.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, um, switching uh, gears just a little bit here. Um Shauna, can you give our audience a, an overview of the findings regarding the legal landscapes in the Southeast with regard to road ownership, the various standards for duties to maintain roads, and immunities from liability, uh, as well as some of the takings law in those four states?
2: Yeah, I will be. I will be glad to do that. And um, I think the first is um, just. The overall premise that we're operating from, particularly with regard to roads and other critical infrastructure, is that sea level rise and flooding is its going to pressure traditional conceptions of what governments do. And governments already have a lot of obligations, they have a lot of duties. But sea level rise and flooding is kind of pushing on these duties in new ways. And so that, that's where, that's kind of where we started with, with that premise. And roads, Thomas is right, roads are what people complain about. They see it, um, they're, they're concerned about it, and, and it affects their property, it affects their access, it affects their daily lives. So our legal analysis started with two basic questions. Um, one is who is responsible? For the roads, and what do the responsibilities look like? And so, you know, when we say who owns the roads, you know that what what we're really talking about is jurisdiction, and um, that's a five-dollar word for who's in charge, who who has authority. And it turned out that that was a complicated question, and we we know this. We have a a federalist framework in the United States. We have local government, state government, and federal government with different levels of authority. But we were struck, particularly when we had some of our geographers map, um, kind of road networks in the context of sea level rise, you see what a patchwork of ownership or jurisdiction it is. And just from a, um, it's it's a very revealing um eye-opening thing to see because while we know this you realize wow I turn off an interstate and I drive onto an exchange and I'm on a state road and a county road and that can happen in a minute and so we as drivers as people are moving between jurisdictions all the time and you know I think Thomas and I we, we go to a lot of meetings we hear a lot of people talk about adaptation and it's not going to be so easy without a lot of coordination. So that's that's a kind of a threshold reason why this matters so much on a really practical level. And it turns out it also matters for um, a legal level as well and related related to duties. So who owns the road or who has jurisdiction over the road also um, is fundamental with what kind of duties do they have? So um, I think part of my your question is, so what is a duty? Um, And again, this is a we all know what it is generally, but it's a very, very specific legal term of art. And it's in the context of, of negligence. And um, for legal purposes, this is why you will or won't get sued is whether you have a duty or not. And usually it's actually called a duty of care. And so when you have contact conduct following under the standard, um, say you're a doctor, has certain duties of care, you're a driver, you have certain duties of, of care. Well, governments have certain duties of care. And they have all kinds of duties, but they have very specific duties related to road maintenance. We focus on road maintenance and, you know, you think, what does this involve? It involves kind of a standard, reasonable standard in design and construction and maintenance and repair. And a lot of factors come into it. You know, you could have considerations of whether a third party, say, an owner next door has created a problem, whether the government was on notice and knew about a problem, whether it could have been revealed by reasonable inspection. All of these kind of factors come up in these situations. But overarching it is kind of the scope of the duty. What is what does that look like for a state government, a county? a municipality. And when we looked across the four state region, we saw 12 different duties to maintain roads. So we had state duties across four states. We had county duties. And when you had municipalities, not only did they differ by state, but they differed within the state. And so you might have a duty of care at the state level Um, And then the county and municipalities would be really different. The other difference that we saw is states varied with kind of who owned the road. So in Georgia, um, about 65 percent or so of roads in coastal areas are owned by counties, run by counties. North Carolina, counties aren't involved at all, almost rarely. They're almost all um, back, um, the state runs county roads. And so when we think even pulling the camera back with a federal policy that might happen or adaptation, it's really going to require state planning and a state framework because the states really differ in how and who is managing a road at all. And so their duties do too. And so, you know, example, um, you know, we could, the, the article, you know, goes through each of these in, in a, duties in a lot of detail, but the du- but the details begin to matter. And so in, in Florida, for example, a county has a duty to provide a reasonable level of ma- maintenance that affords meaningful access. Georgia counties have a duty to maintain so that the road can carry ordinary loads with ordinary ease and facility with, con- over, with continuous haul over them. You might say, well, what's the difference between the two? Well, one, meaningful access is very, very much focused on maybe abutting property owners. Where in Georgia, it's very much about the transportation network, right? What can be hauled continuously over them. So you can see different values kind of coming up that that are distinctive and they lead to, I think the point of that is not an intellectual one, but the point of it is that it leads to different outcomes based on, on on the jurisdiction and state when issues arise.
0: I think what it, in this context that we're looking at adaptation planning, maybe make that link to how it may how those different um uh excuse me duties could affect or impact uh and uh, a choice of adaptation strategy or implementation
2: right and so you know if you're if you've got a different obligation a different a different standard you know if if you're trying if you're doing a vulnerability assessment and you have a road segment that you know floods a lot how and what you might do may depend on, on 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 this these these confines and push you toward a different result because of that and so if, if you've got to provide you know for example a north carolina municipalities you know have have a um free from unnecessary obstruction standard so you wonder is nuisance flooding an unnecessary obstruction this hasn't been litigated yet But if we continue to see rates of nuisance flooding that 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 are happening, you could see how that could be an argument. So if they're already concerned about that, they may actually, you know, they may they may think, gosh, we're going to have to do something in order to meet this standard. That's an open question. And I'm not necessarily advocating for that, to be clear, but that but that's how it could inform kind of adaptation planning. If you know you have an obligation to do that, then you might do that. And I think we'll get to this point later. Thomas and I also, want to rethink some of the things because there may be times when they shouldn't take certain actions. That these duties could push them in actions that aren't helpful for the whole road network. Um, they may not be able to afford, like in St. John's County, to constantly pour ma- pour money into just a small segment of a road network.
0: Sure. So uh, go ahead and 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 keep on going.
2: <laughs> yeah. There's there's so much here. Um, And I think the other kind of big picture issue, without you know, because it's you know, in the end, it's all about the details. But a big picture issue that I I know Thomas talks a lot about is our important distinctions between repair and upgrades, or repair and improvements. And these, looking closely at these duties, a lot of them are a duty to repair, but a few have you know, there's a duty to improve implied Florida codes courts have said the duty is to maintain the road as it exists. There's not, and I think I'm saying that right. Certainly Thomas should, should weigh in if not, and there's not a duty to upgrade beyond that. There's not, you know, there's a standard that, 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 that has to be provided based on what has been provided. And you can already see for adaptation purposes how sticky this is, because, you know, we may think, well, gosh, we would like for for local governments to have a duty to go above and beyond and to improve and to upgrade. But if we don't take the whole picture into account, we don't necessarily want local governments to invest taxpayer dollars and upgrade areas that are very vulnerable and may not be where we want to invest road infrastructure, if that makes sense. So it's it's a tension. It um, could, could be a, a policy tension um, between repairing and improving, and getting into some of these duties, and then getting into how sovereign immunity applies, and getting into you know the details of it. That those two questions also also arise.
0: Right. And can you give a very maybe high level uh, picture of just how sovereign immunity um, impacts uh, those duties as, and how it may differ.
2: Yeah, I'd be glad to. So here we've talked a lot about duty and you have a duty to do something. Um, a concept to understand this context, which is why these cases are so hard and so interesting is sovereign immunity. And so this is a concept that applies to governments only. Um, it's not private. This is not a private um defense, as we would say. It's a, it's a, one that governments can raise and say, that's all fine. You've accused, you know, you've made a claim that we're negligence, but we have sovereign immunity in, in this instance. And it sounds, you know, it's like, wow, you can't sue the government for negligence. And the answer is sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. But you know, why do we have sovereign immunity in the first place? You know, there's this long tradition going back to England of the king can do no wrong. And that has evolved over time, particularly in the United States, as a way to protect governments from financial strain. There's a certain element of the government cannot provide um can only provide a certain level of service for everyone. We can't pick and choose who we provide service to. So we need to provide some sovereign immunity protections or the government won't be in the business of doing it. There's no incentive to do it if at if every turn they could be sued. So there's a policy protection. Now, government waives this all, all the time. So there's statutes and and there's you know all kinds of, of ways the government says, you actually can sue us. We're going to let you sue us in these areas. Areas because we think we think that's good policy to hold us accountable, but then there's court-made law called case law, where you start balancing between discretionary or policy-making functions, and this is a rabbit hole, no doubt. And if it's discretionary, um, whether it's legislative will depend on whether sovereign immunity applies, and. Frankly, the case law can be all over the place, and the distinctions often, you know, turn on things like whether it was repair, was it whether it was a policy or whether it was a policy decision, um, you know, or an upgrade. Whether the government should have known there was a hazard. So, you know, the big take on point is this: is this makes adaptation planning hard. For local governments um i think sometimes bad facts can make bad law it's a cliche but governments want to may want to do the right thing and may try to do the right thing and then find themselves um, outside of sovereign immunity protection
0: And and maybe if I can give you a break for just a second, and and Thomas, maybe you can just uh, (laughs) briefly uh, give us a a high-level view of how takings may also um, uh, kind of factor into some of these local decisions.
3: Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for that, Shauna. I was listening with great interest because I know that. I think we're both going to struggle here in the podcast. We really don't want to bog people down with the legal terminology, but a lot of this becomes so complex that it gets very, very difficult to simplify it without inadvertently making statements that actually aren't quite accurate so we try to keep the jargon out but sometimes it just there's no way around it so my apologies to those out there in the audience listening that don't want to get bogged down with some of this but on that note yes takings so to take a step back, Takings Law, as we typically refer to it, is it all goes back to the U.S. Constitution and the U.S. Constitution's Fifth Amendment, where it provides for protections of private property. It states that nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. and. When somebody believes that their private property rights are being infringed upon for a public purpose and they haven't been compensated, then they file a lawsuit against the government for a quote unquote taking. So when you hear us say takings, that's what we're really referring to. And also many states also have their own state, either constitutional and or statutory takings laws that protect private property. In this context, with, what, with the duties that that Shauna was referring to, what we saw in the Jordan or the legal case I had mentioned earlier, which is called Jordan versus St. John's County with the road washing away, the property owners there, as I noted, filed a takings claim against the government and said that with their lack of maintenance on the road that that had led to a taking of their private property right to maintain their property's connection to the public road system. Because interestingly, private property rights have been interpreted so that if you have access to a public road, you get to keep that access, and if the government takes that access away from you, then that's considered to be taking part of your property. So, there lies the real conundrum here, is as the Atlantic Ocean, for example, in that Jordan case was taking away the road, here the property owners are saying that it's the government taking it away. Well, who was really taking the road away? I mean, I think that's an interesting question. The government put the road there, the state did, then the county accepted it. The county was spending tons of money trying to keep the road there, but was unsuccessful, And then they get sued for not doing enough to keep it there. So you can see just how difficult the issues are because, of course, nobody wants to say, well, just tough luck, property owners. That's just your problem. But at the same time, it doesn't seem sustainable to try to continue to go down the path of throwing ever more money at, at that whole thing. For example, during the trial court, case the county produced a a report that it had commissioned from a private engineering firm and they had estimated it and this was you know almost 15 over 15 years ago now they had estimated a minimum of 13 to 15 million dollars up front for beach nourishment just to create dry land to try to put the road back and that didn't include you know i think it was i think it was on the order of five to eight million dollars every three to five years in maintenance costs and this is for a small handful of homes and mind you every home out there was built after there was you know 30 years of really well-known erosion problems and again severe enough that they had caused the state of florida to not even bother to want to keep the road there so to put that amount of money into perspective For the county of St. John's, their total annual road and bridge maintenance budget for the 2009 year during that case was about $9.6 million. And that was supposed, that's the budget they had for 1,026 miles of road and 47 bridges. And it would have cost them more than that entire budget to try to fix, even start to try to fix 1.6 miles of road to satisfy owners that, again, bought their parcels after decades of serious erosion and road washouts. So what, I, what we see there is when there's a takings claim based on those kind of facts, it can lead one to question, is this really private property rights protection as a shield from arbitrary government action, which is kind of the history of why we want to protect private property rights? We wanna protect private properties private property owners from arbitrary government action? Or is this private individual owners really trying to take that shield and reforge it into a sword that they're now holding over the necks of local government? And that to me is, I think, what really makes me love the terminology that Shauna came up with in our article for expressing this when she talks about we need to kind of recapture a focus on roads as part of our transportation system, because a lot of our law currently seems to have more evolved towards such an individualized perspective that it looks at access to the road system as this right that belongs to specific individualized properties, but without adequate consideration of the whole system together for the public's benefit. And I think that really, I mean, I guess that was implicit in my work, but I give Sean a great credit for bringing that out and making it much clearer.
0: And and, and Thomas, I could see that that those adaptation strategies that might be wanting to look at either realigning roads or, or just um, abandoning them could, uh, would be key or would be the ones that w- would often be hit with a takings uh, case. I could see for lack of access to property.
3: Yes, absolutely, and that's another thing where part of what we propose in the article is this idea of um, adaptive authority to abandon. And the challenge right now, undertakings under this takings law and private property protections law, is. Typically, if a local government entity abandons a segment of public road and say I have a property parcel on that public road, if that removes my access to my property, I'm going to sue and I'm probably going to win. And so you you get in this conundrum again that if I'm I'm St. John's County and I've got this road washing out and I can't afford to fix it to the way these people want or I can't afford to fix it at all because it's entirely gone – now, what do I do? Because I can't afford to fix it. But if I turn around and say, well, I'm going to abandon it formally and legally and say that's no longer a public road, now the property owners are going to turn around and sue the county anyway. And so either, why, either way, the county loses. So again, it's, it's something that's very challenging under our current law to figure out how do you comply with the law in the best possible way.
0: So, Thomas, you, you mentioned uh, some of the proposals, and, and I want to get there. So, just to try to recap, what I'm hearing is that there are a, a host of different duties uh, at different in different jurisdictions, as well as uh, different immunities from those uh, from liability from those varying duties, uh, compounded by potentially. Uh, uh, impacts from taking cases uh, that may, in toto, uh, kind of either offer um, a, a place to hide for those local governments that may not want to do much in the way of trying to adapt uh, to uh, sea level rise or or may pose uh, roadblocks to those that, that do. Is that... Uh, <laughs> In, in, in 10 words or less, a, a, a fairly good way to kind of just recap that?
3: Sure. I I Well, I think so. And I'm going to jump in before Shauna does here, but I would like to invite Shauna. I think you did recap that, Bill, and I think I'd invite Shauna. I think one of the interesting things I I saw that you had contributed in this article, Shauna, was the finding regarding Georgia and their, the fact that they're even addressing sea level rise could inadvertently lead to greater legal liability. And if you wanted to, to mention that.
2: Right, right. No, I, I think, one, Bill, you characterized it very well. And thank you, Thomas, for your, your kind words throughout. I, I appreciate it. It's so fun to work with you. Um, Yeah, so, so you know, we talked a little bit or I talked a little bit about sovereign immunity and how how when that is a shield for local government really depends on, on the kind of kind of duty that that's being conducted, whether it's discretionary, et cetera. And some funky results can come out where, um, you know, for example, in Georgia, and this is distinguished between counties and municipalities, counties we're less protected under the language as I read it from making policy decisions, which is exactly the kind of decisions we want them to make in the sea level rise context. We don't want that. We want them to be able to do vulnerability assessment. We want them to do studies and plan. All of these things are very policy focused, right? And we we want them to to be informed by broader planning considerations and community engagement. And if by doing so, if that kind of activity actually makes them more vulnerable to suit, they shouldn't they wouldn't do it. And that's also part of part of I think the thread of we I mean I will state forthrightly that I'm on, I work for the Institute of Government. I, I'm siding with local government here. I want them to be able to do their jobs and serve the citizens in every way possible and and help them make informed decisions. And so when I see kind of, and I don't think sometimes these policies are intended to have the outcomes that they do, but in this context, they end up doing so. And we want in every Every time we talk about this issue, every kind of moving forward, thinking forward avenue of how can we help local governments, as you say, not feel blocked or not or not take action. We don't want them to use these as excuses, but we can see why they would, if that makes sense. <laughs> and so we, we want to give them every opportunity to be innovative, to make, you know, see the road network as a whole to use modeling and engineering and GIS and flood, you know, flood data and elevation data, all those things so that they can say, you know, let's let's invest our resources where it helps the greatest number of people.
0: Well, and and Shauna, I'd like to stick with you for just a second, and 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 let's move forward now that we know that there's this potential conundrum out there for local governments. Um, and let's talk a little bit about some of the proposals in your paper that uh, are, that you guys propose to address some of these issues. And and included in those are um, developing adaptive duties and resilience standards. Um, and Shauna, can you uh, give us a sense of what that means
2: yeah and um you know underlying it and i i'm I'm gonna you know now seeing thomas's kudos is underlying it all is i think really balancing safety with fiscal reality um we local governments do not in the end the money they have are from taxpayers and they're they don't have unlimited budgets. And one of the things in our study is we, I think we feel as our sweet spot working in Sea Grant that municipalities or smaller places like a Nags Head or a Monroe County, if you will, are really, you know, Miami is, is under threat, but they have a lot of resources in comparison to many coastal communities. So um, you know, a town of twenty thousand people um, does not have the capacity to, to raise the kind of money that it might take to deal with some of these issues. So before I, you know, underlying it is how do we balance safety, you know, certainly, and and fiscal reality. And so uh, something that that Thomas raised, and and this may be because of his where he grew up in in in, in Minnesota is. There are um, areas of the country that have minimum maintenance standards and particularly, you know, Thomas had found, you know, a number of statutes in in the Midwest because it's so rural. And the population is so sparse that it's actually understood that these roads just can't be maintained to the same standards where more people live. And they have extreme weather events, certainly you know there's lots of snow and 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 you know I can only imagine with with rain and flooding. Um, and so these minimum maintenance standards exist and while um, you know what that what that might look like is, in some ways drivers have to understand that they're going to encounter unpaved services or single lanes of varying widths, maybe, or maybe there are periods when the roads are submerged. This is where you live. You live in a place where roads may, may be submerged. And this is a change of how we're thinking about infrastructure, I think, in coastal areas. Um, I think until recently we had a sense we could restore, engineer our way and go back to like an existing state. And so pulling from these other states, I mean, Thomas is, and I'll pause and let him talk about some of the ordinances and work he's done, but really getting to a minimum maintenance standards in certain areas, you know, and giving people notice that they live in such an area and taking to account traffic volume and, and those kinds of things is a way for us to, one, one component of adaptive and adaptive duty. And I'm going to stop and let Thomas weigh in on on some of that.
3: Well, thanks, Shauna. Yeah, I think Shauna and I are, we both kind of keep hovering around this central point. And that, again, is that this idea that we, uh, as we confront these impacts from civil rights, uh, an obvious presupposition that we're making that Maybe I need to make explicit here is the idea that we're not going to keep all our roads in the same condition in the same places where they are now. That's simply not going to happen because of the fiscal constraints that Shauna mentioned. Particularly, that's going to be seen first again in these smaller local governments because their lack of resource base. It can take millions of dollars to raise roads over a you know even just a couple miles. So. If you're a small local government, you don't have those funds. So keeping that in mind, I think the other thing that we keep revolving around is, and I'm squarely with Sean on this page, I also feel like my responsibility as an employee with uh, an organization serving the public is that I need to be serving these local governments so that they have the ability to make the hard decisions that are their duty to make. And I think that's a point that goes back to some of the detail that Shauna was addressing about sovereign immunity and making decisions by local governments. Part of the reason we have, what sovereign immunity we have maintained, we've maintained because from a policy perspective, we want local government, the legislative branch of local government, your city council, your county commission, we want those people to have the latitude to make difficult policy decisions that balance really conflicting factors sometimes. And this is a quintessential example when we're looking at roads. How do you balance your desire to help your constituents provide access to their private property to help keep them safe with the fact that, well, not only might you need to protect these Two dozen property over owners over here but you've got a thousand other miles of road to also maintain you can't put it all to that to those two dozen owners so those are really excruciatingly difficult decisions and courts have maintained sovereign immunity because they say we don't want to allow people to sue for those big planning, hard legislative decisions, we don't want them to be able to sue easily for that because that is not a judicial oversight duty. That's the duty of the legislature to make those really hard balancing policy decisions. And that's not for the courts to articulate the, the, what those decisions should be. So we wanna stay out of it, the courts say
2: and and that, that that distinction is you know there are routine elements so we're you know that we don't want to you know in our article we say gross negligence we're we're, we're comfortable you know with with local governments being held to a standard of gross negligence surely but we, we want to balance that with exactly what what thomas is saying of these some of the choices the policy choices that will be need to make about you know maybe there's an innovative engineering proposal that local governments want think that that's important to invest in um, it might it and if the studies show it's very likely to work and all of these things and the work is done and they invest and they they go in a certain area to do something um, and they have the funding to do it we, we want to we want them to be able to do it in a very uncertain environment moving forward we it may not protect property owners 30 years from now i mean you know no matter what the local government does today there may be things we just will not be able to do all the things that that for that may work in 50 years because we don't have perfect knowledge of the future and but nevertheless we want to do the best we can with the knowledge that we ha- that we have so that's why that distinction between kind of routine things that governments often are liable for, as opposed to more legislative decision making, is so important. Um, another, I think, element I just want to hark on, I guess, harp on, I guess, is really seeing, and this, you know, this duty would include seeing the road as a network. And, and decision-making, again, this goes to more of a policy viewpoint, a legislative viewpoint of what does the entire system look like? What are the roads that are leading to critical facilities, such as hospitals, that, that relate to broader public welfare? We're going to have to prioritize some things over others. And we think this adaptive duty should 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 include Um, You know, those kind of vulnerability assessments that that if if you're going to be in this area, if you're going to be doing this work, you should be able to take the whole system into account. And um, of course, we would expect this to be done with traditional, you know, public notice and transparency elements of local government. You know, this is always government action like this is always should be a community driven process.
0: Great. And, and uh, Shauna, you had uh, also identified um, along with developing these adaptive duties, including in those some resilience standards. Can you, can you give us a sense of uh, or maybe an example of what, what that might be?
2: Yeah, so we we have you know kind of a duty to do something, and then you know the courts and evaluate whether you met this duty under a standard, and often it's a reasonable standard, a reasonable standard, and and we wanted you know a resilience, a reasonable resilience standard of what would a what does it look like to act reasonably in taking resilient action, and for us, um, it would be actions that promote community wide resilience. It meets community adaptation goals and targets and timelines. Um, the, it it incorporates management best practices such as including the best available science, doing vulnerability assessments. Um, you know, all those are the kind of factors that that would, if a government did these things and they did the best they could and they did use the science of today, we would think, hey, they met a reasonable resilience standard. And this goes back to, um, this is this is a quality standard. This is an expectation that the governments are going to do vulnerability assessment. Say, but if they do the vulnerability assessment, and 15 years from now we realize sea level rise was a lot worse than we thought, but they were using today's science, we want to say, hey, they they did meet this reasonable resilience standard. Um, if that if that if that makes sense, and then we also. Want to put in the idea that this standard is not necessarily a duty to act. Um, it's a standard that allows for the limits to be acknowledged. So, um, if this, if it looks like that, you know, this is not. Oh, you've got to build a seawall and protect everything everywhere. No, it may be something where where the government says, oh, we we need to. Um, acquire properties or we need to stop providing services in this area and we're going to have set timelines for that we're going to start putting people on notice that if certain thresholds are met related to flooding that we're no longer going to maintain the streets in the same way and that would meet a resilience standard so i want to be clear that we're not trying to make governments do things that don't make sense um if they don't make sense for resilience
0: I see. Is it? It's taking more of a holistic approach to this, um, and 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 talking a little bit like you were suggesting abandonment. And I want to shift to Thomas for a second because that was another one of your proposals. Was uh, in addition to the adaptive. Uh, duty to maintain, you were talking about developing an adaptive authority to abandon roads. And Thomas, can you uh, explain that for us uh, just a little bit?
3: Yes, that goes back again. I, I keep using it as an example that case of the road that washed out in Florida the, in the Jordan versus St. John's County. And again, as I noted there, you had such huge expenses on the part of the county and often i would have people telling me well why didn't the county just abandon the road and again because that also leads to liability there so i think the real challenge um is that things are going to continue to spiral out of control in many instances from a cost perspective as local governments try to avoid Potential takings claims because they're not maintaining roads. I know that there's been a discussion going on down in the Florida Keys in Monroe County. So there's a neighborhood of about 138 homes that had the roads go underwater for about three months last year, and they didn't once come out of the water in over three months. It started with high tides and winds and they just stayed underwater. So the county did an engineering study that examined some potential ways of addressing this. And for the three effective proposals that they were looking at, each of them would have cost between about 20 to $21 million to install plus annual maintenance costs that range from about 18000 to $180,000 per year. And all this would be to serve 138 homes and maybe be useful for maybe 20 to 30 years. So if you do the math, it comes out to somewhere as around $7,000 to $9,000 in cost per house per year for 20 years if you amortize over that period. And again, the numbers can easily get worse. So even if the county does this right now and the general taxpayers pay that subsidy to help those people, What happens when that's no longer uh, functioning? It's gonna be exponentially more expensive to try to do something in the future. So at some point, we are gonna lose roads and that's where we need need to think more carefully about an adaptive authority to abandon. What that looks like is really hard to say at this point because there is clearly authority to abandon roads and we go over that in the paper. And the standards, excuse me, usually include language about, you know, not about not harming the public interest, about being in the public interest. And that works well for the kind of frame that we've established, this idea of looking at roads as part of a public road system, as opposed to just a road being something that serves X private properties. So, I think that language sounds nice, but the way it's typically been interpreted to date is more with a focus on those individual private properties. And so, if abandonment occurs, then the local government typically has been held liable for paying damages to those property owners for loss of that public access. How we're going to address that portion in the future. So, clearly, local governments can abandon roads. There are standards for doing that. You can do it. But are we going to continue to force those local governments to then pay a bill, pay compensation to the property owners that are impacted by that? And if we do, what do they get? I I think it's a very interesting question. What what should their compensation be? If I choose to buy a property at the end of a three-mile road down in the Florida Keys, and that road is barely above sea level. And then it starts going under. And the county says, well, we're not going to spend $3 million or $5 million for you and one other homeowner out there so that you have a three-mile road through the water. And so I turn around, I sue the county. I say, well, I bought a $5 million property and now you owe me $5 million bucks." Anyway. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's a very challenging one because if I get $5 million from the county, either in the in the form of the road, which it's arguable that doesn't serve the public's interest very well, or I get $5 million because they abandon the road, then is that just a subsidy to me? Should I get that $5 million or not? Or should my property even be valued at $5 million? Because it's not worth anything unless- there's that road, and do we? And if I get five million dollars, it's basically like it's the same as saying the public owes me that road, and I think that's a that's a really challenging question to answer. Hmm.
0: Um, and it seems to me after after reading the article that a lot of the gist that I was getting was if there is going to be something an a, at a, Adaptive authority to abandon roads. It, it really is going to be making the case um, for why this this particular uh, abandonment, this section, is in the public interest. And and it sounded like there's likely going to be ha- have to be a lot of uh, planning and public input and 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 good data to be able to back up that up, so that you might be able to win a case. Um, was I reading that correctly?
2: Yes. <laughs> go ahead, comment. No,
3: you go ahead. Go ahead, Jonna.
2: Yeah, I, I think yes, that's right. And and I think that what's hard is that you know we're getting into an area where duties and negligence is is traditionally related to protecting people from harm, but it's getting very merged and. Thomas has an article on this too with takings, which is a different interest in protecting against government invasion of rights, of property rights. And those are very important values, both of those. And I think what's getting hard is 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 the government invading your property rights? Because it can no longer afford to maintain a road to your property. I mean, that's there's not a lot of intent there, and there's not a lot of direct government action um, getting into your property. Right, you made an investment that um, went went bad. I mean, I, really, I mean that's that's sort of a tough way to put it. But you know, you you have an investment that. That, no, that didn't pan out the way you thought. And that is an element of takings law. So I think Thomas raises, at some point, it'll be interesting to see the courts, of course, differ on all kinds of things and come to different conclusions, often how sympathetic the plaintiff is. But there are, we looked at some cases and talk about a couple where the courts are very sympathetic to the local government. You know, they, and there's some related to some cases after Hurricane Harvey you know uh, that thomas has written about and talked about where some of the courts are, are kind of sympathetic to gosh we don't you know we don't have we're not here to provide perfect flood control we, we can't provide perfect flood control um it's impossible so you know it you know as these pressures continue um they'll also pressure the courts it'll be interesting to see if the court says well part of your takings claim is is that you're not your investment back expectations were five million house, but it, it's not worth it. Your fair market value actually is. Who would buy this? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think that's well stated, Sean. And I think it 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 merges or leads us into an area that's been of also great interest to me over the years and that is providing notice to both current and potential property owners about what they might be getting into because I think Sean hit it on the head these people made a bad investment potentially and now they're expecting that they can use property rights law to walk away from it intact and i don't see any other place where our government is willing to say to private individuals well you know if you do a big cash outlay and it doesn't go as you want you know we're we're going to we're going to say the taxpayers have to make you whole i mean i don't get that guarantee if i were to invest in the stock market or anything else why but i that seems to be what people increasingly are expecting from property. So I think that one of the things we need to do is is work towards disabusing people of that notion. And I think you know it's part of our American uh, kind of ethos that we should have some personal responsibility for our decision making and the results of those actions. And I think that. We, one of the, one of the things that may need to come into play here is a renewed focus on the idea that property owners need to be aware of what they're getting themselves into. Is it going to just become the norm that before you buy a property, you kind of look at, well, what's the access? What's the elevation? What is the risk? What is the flood risk? Because increasingly we're trying to shift all of those costs of risk to properties and to property owners onto the taxpayer. And at some point that I just think that fiscally, that's not very manageable. And if we're not, if we can't do that fiscally, then would it behoove us to have policies to help ensure that people are more aware of these risks and more capable of making sound decisions for their own future by understanding those risks?
2: Well said.
0: Great. and. <clears throat> so so shauna um moving from what we're hearing is uh some of these proposals uh were to basically try to have a consistent set of some type of adaptive duties and authorities uh that uh, are developed and so how does that how does that happen um uh, who is going to do that? And in the paper, uh, you kind of pointed a finger at the state and said that there's a, a pretty big role for, for the state in this process. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I, 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 I'd i be glad to. I, I do think that we we want to strike a balance between acknowledging that areas are different, that, that there are different needs and there's different topographies. There's different cultural, you know, all kinds of, of distinctions between jurisdictions that are important and that matter. And so we didn't want to propose, okay, Congress, write a law, create a standard. Um, that's not how tort law works anyway. It's it's very state specific. So when we say state, I'm not so much saying um, shake your finger at the state as much as saying tort law is state law and states courts and state legislatures are the ones. I mean, there is federal tort law related to certain claims but but for you and me and everybody else in this paper it is state law it's governed by state law so that's where where it should be you know we would hope at least that Georgia could have the same standard for all its jurisdictions that would be a good start um, and Florida could have the same standard for for its state local state county and municipalities and that would be a way to at least you know deal with the patchwork internal to the state and it's not just because you know we have you know we we value states more than the feds or anything like that but again this is where tort law is it's a state creation of law and so that so that's one but i think that that having it also and this isn't in the paper but this gets a little bit into your gets a lot into your background bill of you know We've done coastal zone management in a very kind of cooperative way between NOAA and the states through the Coastal Zone Management Program. And that's not a bad framework, I think. I think, you know, if you could set certain expectations in that, and then the states come up with plans and enforceable policies related to those expectations, you allow some, you know, state level variability, but then you also have directive of expectation. So we don't go into that to the same extent here, but we already have a nice framework to, to do some of that.
0: Right. Um, and, and I'm, I'm looking where we're, we're getting close to time. Uh, and I want to make sure that, uh, uh, people have. I think this has been fascinating. Um, it, it is uh, a little bit in the the wonky details, but uh, I think this is really great stuff. But uh, I uh, maybe we can just touch briefly on uh, whether uh, these findings um, are transferable to other areas of the country. And I I, I know you'll say it depends, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, in. in I I, I I would think that there are likely to be uh, situations that are similar um, but uh, but how do you see the transferability or, or why should people uh, you know pick this up and read it if you're you know in another uh, region of the country and and that would be how about Thomas
3: okay well yeah uh, you you nailed us that's why I had to laugh because of course we're gonna say it depends we're, we're trained as lawyers um, and and as Sean has pointed out, a lot of what we dissect in there is, is state law because it's related to torts and sovereign immunity. And while the detail, the very fine details that can make a difference in individual cases are distinct from state to state, broad brush, it's very similar. I mean, most states have these very similar ideas of a distinction between a legislative decision versus more maintenance or, you know, they use different terminology, but they usually have these similar broad brush approaches. So yes, it's very much transferable in that sense. And it's even transferable to other types of infrastructure in some instances. And again, there will be specific differences in the duties, but usually there are duties. And there are exceptions for types of infrastructure. So, you know, you could look at, say, um, drainage infrastructure, which is something that I've also looked at in this context. So, yes, it's definitely something that we view as useful for those beyond the four individual states that we looked at. Mm-hmm.
0: And Shauna, anything to add? And and do you do you know of any others that are doing similar work to your research or uh, in other geographies?
2: Yeah, I know. Um, I know that um, the Virginia Coastal Policy Clinic, um, our colleague Elizabeth Andrews there, is, is is has done similar analysis, and that actually, you know, has work is working with VIMS um, on a similar analysis. And I and I think that um, both Thomas and I. Um, you know, Mississippi, Alabama, other areas have reached out to us to talk talk about kind of what we learned in the framework. Because he's right, the devil always is in the details, but yet the big frames, you know, the big hooks, if you will, are going to be similar. And figuring out which, which of the details worked and which didn't is something folks are really interested in. Um, everybody is, you know, this is a highly local problem. These are, this is happening everywhere. And I don't, there's not, so far, at least in the Southeast, I would say, we've had interest um, from all kinds of of jurisdictions beyond our four states.
0: Great. Um, uh, And and Thomas, uh, are there any, examples that people could look at where either the locals or states have actually developed adaptation duties and authorities?
3: Well, I think, yes, there are some examples out there, some really great work that's being done. So, for example, we cite in the article and provide information where you can find resources for what Monroe County, Florida is doing. That's the Florida Keys, because, of course, they talk about a canary in the coal mine. They are there and they are really already struggling hard with these problems. So they've got some interesting approaches there that, you know, you can look at. I know that I've been working extensively with a small city called Satellite Beach, which unsurprisingly is near Cape Canaveral. Florida, and that is a small town of about 10,000 people on a barrier island. So they are very fascinating because they have really kind of taken to heart that the long term prognosis for their community is challenging because they're they're very low on a barrier island, and they see the writing on the wall, and they are really trying to take a proactive approach to addressing that. So those that's really a quintessential type of community that I think is the type of community that Sean and I want to work to try to help ensure that they can be creative and try to find ways to do the best they possibly can for their community without suffering massive legal liability. Um, So, yeah, there are communities out there doing things with regards to seawalls. The city of Fort Lauderdale in Florida has taken a really innovative approach there on how they address seawalls that are too low and are allowing tides to wash over them and flood neighborhoods. So, yeah, there are definitely communities out there that are taking innovative steps to try to approach different types of infrastructure.
0: Great. And that that leads me into – Uh, another question because the roads weren't the only infrastructure that you all investigated as part of this broader um, resilience uh, research project. Um, And uh, could you just uh, talk about very briefly what other infrastructure you touched on? And is there any way for people to find out a bit more about um, any of your findings with regards to those uh, infrastructures? And Shauna, maybe starting with you.
2: Sure. Um, we have a webpage. It's, if you go to the Georgia Sea Grant um, webpage and then the legal program, you'll see a series of white papers. And um, we we actually did a ton of research in, in a lot of different areas, but the white papers cover in, also cover um, septics and um, historic properties. And we did quite a we had students do quite a good deal of research related to provision of sewage as well under the clean clean water act and you know some of the, some of this just goes to you you know not only do you have different duties and obligations across jurisdictions with respect to roads but you just change infrastructure and you have different powers and duties depending on the infrastructure so a local government may be able to abandon a road yes there are takings problems but what about a sewer? That's a totally different analysis. And so um, those are, you know, those are the kinds of questions we were looking at. And often it depends on the agreement and the service provision agreement and all kinds of things um, in that context. But a lot of coastal counties, as you know, are on septic. And so, you know, in the instance of NAGSHED, X has a really strong local septics program. Um, they do a lot of education. They do a lot of um, inspections and, and they're very, very active, but they are preempted from state law from really, really regulating the use of septics in their town. And that's an instance where, um, you know, the that's a, a really tough issue, too, between all these jurisdictions. Local governments can be also preempted from taking action. And this is an example of a local government that would like to go above and beyond state law but can't. And so we helped them and wrote a white paper describing this problem because the town was having to respond to citizen complaints and say we are doing absolutely just about everything we can under our authority. We promise you when we say we can't do more, it's true. <laughs> they wanted to be able to say, no, we, we really can't do any more than we're doing because we're preempted by state law. So so that was that was some of some of the other work. And then historic properties, so many of our coastal areas are, you know, the first places that were settled, especially on the Atlantic seaboard. And so there's a lot of wonderful historic landmarks and properties, and local governments want to preserve those and have, you know, ordinances that go above and beyond national historic, you know, um, heritage laws. And those things can conflict with, um, you know, elevation, you know, flooding ordinances and things like that and, and who wins. And so we walked through the National Historic Preservation Act and then looked at some, some local law to, to kind of understand how that works. So that's available on our website. Oh,
0: on the Georgia Sea Grant website, is that correct? It is.
2: And as a community that's doing some quite interesting work related to historic properties, and we have a, a white paper on that as well as well as a case study is Annapolis, Maryland. Um, they've done some really cool trying to figure that out and you can, you can see why that would matter a lot to Annapolis.
0: And, and Thomas, uh, uh, I know that uh, you all also looked at stormwater as well as, you, and you mentioned seawalls earlier. Um, are there white papers on those and where could readers find those? a reader's audience.
3: Yes, actually, you know, interestingly, I kind of start, I did an initial analysis with a colleague on drainage and what is local government liability for drainage. And we published that back in, I believe it was 2013. So quite a while ago already. Um, And I know that others have done even deeper dives on that topic since, but that is available, that and other resources are available on the Florida Sea Grant. Website, And if you go to the coastal planning segment of the Florida Sea Grant website, you can find case studies and there are also a number of different policy tools and publications, including the publication we're discussing today, The Roads to Nowhere in Four States. As well as also, there's a write up on the innovative seawall ordinance in Fort Lauderdale, and yeah, a number of different resources there. Great,
0: and and I'm I'm sorry, I'm having to uh, hustle you guys through, um, but we will make uh, those links available on the um, uh, podcast uh, network uh, notes page for this show. Uh, so final uh, any final thoughts or takeaways or, or, or comments that you'd like to leave the listeners with and uh, I'll start with uh, you Shauna and then Thomas
2: final thoughts I I guess I guess I, I want to say I have I hope folks have some empathy for local governments and 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 work with local governments and try try to see that um, Doing something is always really hard, but but this is particularly thorny. And what's inspiring is so many, quite a number of local governments are really trying to do what they can to make their communities safe and to deal with flooding and sea level rise. And and that's some of the most innovative thinking and inspiring people I've seen have actually been on the local government level in these areas. So I'd like to leave folks with that note.
3: Great. And Thomas? Yeah. I think as kind of parting thoughts, I would like to take a really big step back or up and go to kind of a 30,000 foot view and say that, you know, I think part of the challenge in this whole area and that sea level rise, it really provides us with an opportunity or maybe even the necessity to kind of carefully examine our current conceptions of property, what we think about private property and what it means. And what are the assumptions that we're making with all that? I think. Too many people really believe that property is a specific thing that is some eternal or some eternal idea that was handed down from the heavens and that never changes, and nothing could really be further from the truth. The law, and especially the law of property, mirrors us as a society, it mirrors the social and financial context of whatever our times are, and it changes due to changes in culture, due to changes in finance, due to changes in industry. It's a, it's a much more plastic thing than most people really understand. And so I think sea level rise represents just such a radical change that it very well may need to change our very foundational notions of what property means and allow it to evolve to ensure that our concepts of property continue to really serve society as a whole rather than as, you know, potentially as a tool for a small percentage of property owners who own the most at-risk properties to be able to force others to pay for their decision-making. And I think, you know, These are really big, hard questions. And of course, I don't have any specific answers, but I think we really do need to arrive at the answers as a society and as communities through really challenging, arduous conversations about what we really value and believe in. And I think part of the role, I think the role that I want to play is to help ensure that we do have those robust conversations so that we're not just... Plowing ahead based on the past, because if there's one thing we've seen, it's that the future is not going to look like our past.
0: Agreed, agreed, totally. Um, and I, I would just like to say that I mean, hearing this, I also hear a a real need. And and Shawna, you touched on a little a little bit with as far as the the coastal zone management program, which is really a. Coastal policy and planning program. That there's a real need to have that 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 planning that's going to uh, engender that robust conversation uh, to pull out all those values uh, and how we move forward uh, in a a really changing uh, and dynamically changing uh, kind of landscape. Um, so with that, I, I just like to thank you guys so much for for participating on the show um and all the work that you guys have done in this arena i i think it's tremendously important to all of our coastal listeners out there because all the coastal communities is going to be uh uh wrestling with these thorny issues um in the near future so so guys thanks for guys and gals thanks for being on this show i really appreciate it
3: thank you very much for having us bill thank
2: you bill
0: Well, everybody, uh, see you on the next Coastal uh, Conundrum Show with hopefully another interesting conundrum to deal with.